It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 26. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling Hit History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we'll stretch into the 1930s. And in this episode I discuss the series of matches between Earl Caddock and Joe Stetcher in 1917 and 1920 respectively. This Relook at these matches is based on a podcast interview that I listened to with Mike Chapman, who's one of the more famous historians of Frank Gotch, and the Shut Up and Wrestle podcast uh, that Brian Solomon produces each week. But first, before we get into the main contact for this week, I first want to thank uh, regular listener Shannon Bertrand. Shannon was kind enough to reach out to me when I uploaded what I thought was episode 25 a couple of weeks ago, even though I had recorded it, uh, when I went to upload it into my podcast host, I somehow clicked on to episode 17 and reloaded it. So Shannon was kind enough to reach out and to let me know that, and I was able to get episode 25 uh, up, so now it should be the correct episode on all the platforms that you actually listen to the podcast on. So thank you. Uh, Shannon also uh, is an MMA fan as well and sees the correlation between uh, the the original professional wrestling in the United States that was many times legitimate contests but was based on legitimate skill. And if you look at the early days of MMA... Minoru Suzuki, Funaki, uh, a lot of the early MMA wrestlers had a catch wrestling, catches catch can wrestling background, and so there is quite a bit of crossover between the two. And I just happened to have watched the, I think they called it UFC on ABC yesterday. The main event was Ilya Taporia versus Josh Emmett, but there were a couple of really good fights, and the one that I would recommend to anybody that wants to check out MMA, if you want to watch two fighters that are really executing at a really high level, the uh, Jamal uh, Emmers and he took on Jack 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 Jenkins. I think it was the second. It was either the second or third about on that UFC card in the prelims was just a f- fantastic. Uh, match between two very skilled fighters. I actually think Emmers won the the fight, but it was a really close fight, split decision, and it's really uh, shows MMA at a high level by a couple of fighters. The match that match mixing my metaphor or mixing my terms again. The bout between that followed that was Travis Peak and. The uh, 
card I saw said Jose uh, Marisol, but I'm I swore they said Shepe Marisol. But Marisol was a very good fighter. Travis Peak is a really strong, gutsy fighter, but I wouldn't say his skill level was that great, particularly what he exhibited in this fight. And the commentators were raving about that fight, and I didn't think that fight was nearly as good as Emmers versus Jenkins. So if you can watch one fight on there, watch that. If you just want to see a master class in mixed martial arts, and unfortunately kind of outclassing his opponent, the main event between Deporia and Emmett was a showcase of Teporia's skill level. Not that Emmett didn't put up a good fight and that he fought till the very end. It went the whole five rounds. But it was a, it was a pretty one-sided uh, fight. Switching from MMA to jump into modern wrestling, I actually broke my Vince McMahon boycott a week ago to watch the SmackDown episode where Jey Uso made the decision of whether he would fall in line and go back to the Tribal Chief or not. And I will say that it paid off in seeing Jey Uso finally super kick the Tribal Chief after the three-year uh, build-up to that. I have always thought that it's Roman Reigns' desire to lose his the first match in his hundred or his one thousand day reign. I've always thought that he would prefer to drop that fall to Jay Uso, who he's very close to. I don't know that Vince sees Jay Uso the same way, and I don't know that that is what's going to happen. But I will say it was probably a lot more likely two years ago than the stops and starts and changes in direction that have occurred since then. But it was a great payoff to the original storyline. Unfortunately, you had to slog through an hour and 45 minutes of not very interesting wrestling uh, to get to it. It's my problem with modern wrestling and why I'm not really a fan anymore is things that I would have been interesting, interested in seeing, like Cross versus AJ Styles went just a few minutes. Uh, things I had no interest in, like this tag team uh, farce that was at the beginning of the show, that went 30 minutes. It's who was interested in that 30 minutes of that tag team uh, mess. Vince doesn't care about tag teams. He doesn't invest in tag teams. And it seems like they've anointed pretty deadly now to be their new heel tag team. And I just don't see those guys hitting it. I don't see them getting the kind of heat they're thinking they're going to get because, quite frankly, I think that the whole concept is outdated. They're trying to play on people's homophobia, and I just don't think that works uh, like it would have in the 1980s. And they're hardly the best tag team you've got out there. In fact, they're one of the more green ones. Um, and, and like I said, the whole hour and 45 minutes before the culmination of the bloodline was boring, uninteresting, and I was pretty much doing other stuff while that was going on. So... I don't have much hope that this will eventually... I will watch the Money in the Bank tag match between the Usos and Reigns and Sokoa, but my hopes are not very high. So, that, enough of that. Let's talk about some historical wrestling.
So I, I said in the last podcast how impressed I was when I listened to the podcast with Mike Chapman on Brian Solomon's show. And there were there is a link to that show if you go back to the show notes for uh, if you go to kensermanjr.com slash episode 25 and this is for all of the podcast episodes are all labeled the same way so if you ever want to go back to check out the show notes for any episode you just put episode the number and another slash and that will take you to the page but i put a link to that podcast in the show notes for the last episode episode 25 because i was really impressed with the interview i was impressed with another one recently i'll probably go into that in the next episode but I have avoided in the past reading historians that are researching the same era that I am just because I fear accidentally incorporating some of their work into my work and I don't ever want to plagiarize anybody else's intellectual property. However, I've written probably everything I'm ever going to write about Frank Gotch, so I thought it was safe to listen to this particular podcast, and I'm glad I did. Uh, I do share many of the same opinions that uh, Mr. Chapman does. One of the things I'd say we're different on is I don't often attribute why somebody did or didn't do anything to their personal characteristics because we've got such a limited picture of what they were really like you're going on personal accounts, either written by people that hated them or by their family. Or you're going by the newspaper articles, and those weren't always completely accurate either. So I try not to attribute why somebody did something based on a personal characteristic. They were very honorable. I think George Hackenschmidt, if you read his work, seems to be pretty honorable. But since we're only getting such a small window into his character in that, I wouldn't want to go too far out on that ledge. So, in general, I just try to report what happened, and I try not to. You're always going to a little bit. I try not to veer off too far into too much speculation, but everybody will speculate a little bit. So, with my three disclaimers about all of this, one of the subjects he talked about and I have not looked into as much as I've looked into some other stuff was a series of matches between Earl Caddock and Joe Stecker and I always assumed based on some of the research that I was doing back when I was doing the Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio book that Stecker, Caddock and Vladik Zabisco were working all of their matches because there were newspaper articles about when titles were going to switch and that the uh, those three wrestlers were trading the world title around at that time and they were all working for the Curly faction. And because I hadn't really dug into it too much, as you'll find when you really start to research something, a lot of your previous held beliefs or thoughts or conclusions based on inconclusive evidence are later disproven and if you listen to next the episode that's going to come out the second week in July which is July 10th I'm actually going to go over what I learned with the Sorokichi Matsuda project which is almost complete the assumptions I went into it with and how many of those were dispelled 
and a couple of things that I had believed based on previous research I had done with like Evan Strangler Lewis, that because there's more sources available now, I wrote that book in 2015, there were a couple things that I thought that were wrong. But for this particular episode, I always believed that the matches between Stecker and Caddock by 1917 were worked, although even though I like to use 1915 as a clean break for when professional wrestling pretty much became prearranged exhibition, there were still contests going on in that late, the five years between 1915 and 1920. Ed Strangler Lewis and Joe Stecker wrestled at least three contests. So it's possible these early matches would have been contests too because they were still doing a mix, but it was definitely going much more heavily into worked exhibitions. So the first one I looked at was the original 1917 match where Caddock beats Stecker for the world title. And quite honestly, I had not even read about that particular match because there was no reason for me at any time before this to have been researching that, and I had not just come across it while I was digging through the newspaper archives looking for good stories. And in hindsight, it's it was a huge match. I should have looked into it a long time before this. This match was in Omaha, which Stecker was from Dodge, Nebraska, and... Uh, sorry, Earl Caddock was from Iowa originally. So they were both Midwestern guys. And the whole uh, reason to hold it in Omaha was Stecker was a big draw. Caddock was becoming a big draw in the Midwest. So they thought in Omaha they could draw the biggest crowds. So that's how Omaha got selected for this match. This match went exceedingly long. Now, it was very common, even with work matches, up until the early 1920s, mid-1920s, those matches would go two, two and a half hours, even when they were work matches. And part of it was they didn't want matches to get over too quickly because they were afraid the fans would suspect that they were working the matches. But the most important reason why these matches went so long is because gambling was a significant portion of both the promoter and the wrestlers prior to the promotional system developing in the late teens. It would have been the organizers. But a big part of their money-making operation for these matches, besides the gate receipts, was gambling during the matches. So the matches would go long so that the people that were working the crowd for gambling could go out there and generate the bets that they were trying to generate. Who would win the first fall? How quickly would that fall be? And so a lot of times that went pretty long because the longer you went, the more time they had to get more uh, bets generated. So the first fall of this match, which occurred in the auditorium in Omaha, went an hour and 20 minutes, and Stecker won that fall with the leg scissors, 
which you can use as a legitimate hold. And most of the time when Stecker was using it legitimately, he would pair it with a double arm wrist lock, which he did at this particular match. And another reason I think it could be a contest, actually, is this match was deadly dull except for the two falls. And a lot of legitimate contests developed that way. If the wrestlers weren't of the same skill level, if one wrestler was significantly better, they could beat the other wrestler whenever they wanted. Evan Strangler Lewis would carry guys as long as he felt like it, and then he'd beat them when they, he felt like it. And if they made him mad, he'd hurt them. This match was deadly dull for almost the whole three hours they were in the ring, with the exception of the falls themselves. So after an hour and 20 minutes, Stecker wins the uh, first fall with the leg scissors and double arm wrist lock. They take the typical uh, 15 minute intermission and then they come back for the second fall. And this again goes an hour and 40 minutes and finally, Kadak is able to take Stecker down and pin him at the one hour and 50 minute mark of the second fall. And Stecker has to be carried from the ring. He's so exhausted. Again, they go the 15 minute intermission and Stecker says that he cannot continue. The referee then awards the match, the, the third fall and the match to Caddock on a forfeiture or a withdrawal and Caddock is now the new world heavyweight champion. Stecker claims that he had asked for an additional five minutes of rest but the referee said you got to be there at 15 minutes which by the rules is true but that that was refused but then he also said in the papers that Caddock had defeated him fairly. They did not wrestle an immediate rematch and Jack Curley decides to have a tournament for the World Heavyweight Championship even though Caddock is the current World Heavyweight Champion. They have the ch title tournament which is won by Vladek Zabisco. Eventually Caddock wrestles Vladek Zabisco and he defeats Vladek Zabisco in what may or may not have been a legitimate contest. And then Caddock joins the army because we're in World War I now. We're in 1918. He joins the army and he goes away to the army for a year and a half. So during that year and a half, Stecker and Zabisco wrestle several times, but Caddock is in the army. In July 1919, Caddock is released from the army and he returns and is going to finally give Joe Stecker the rematch. And the rematch is scheduled for January 30th, 1920, in Madison Square Garden, under the promotional banner of Jack Curley. And after I, before I go into what I think occurred here, let me talk about what Mike Chapman said in the interview, and you can go back and listen to it yourself if you'd like. He said, because Earl Caddock's sons were alive when Mike Chapman was researching some of his books, and he was able to talk to both of them. 
And they both said that after the second match where Stecker beat Caddick in January 1920, they were called into the office of a promoter, who has to be Jack Curley, but they, they didn't name him. And he said that that was the greatest match that they had ever seen and that he was offering them big money to work this match all over the country. And Caddock told the promoter that there's no way that I can do that. I'm not a phony wrestler. And Joe Stecker said, I can't do that either. And they walked out. Which would make most people think, oh, well then the 1920 match was also a contest. But after going through and th there's a video that's a very uh, shortened video. The match itself went, it was another two and a half hour affair. And so this video is less than 20 minutes. So it's, it's very condensed pieces of the match. But after reading the New York newspaper's account of the match, I have little doubt in my mind at all that that January 30th, 1920 match was a work, that they were working together with each other. And I say that is because, one, it was a fairly interesting match throughout. Number two, they used some things that you would not normally use as a wrestler, where you were giving somebody your back. The Stecker used the headlock a couple of times. So you will see people be thrown with a headlock in MMA, but the person almost always spins chest to chest with them or starts punching them. The same thing you'll see in judo, you'll see a thing called kesagatami. And if you can hold somebody tight enough using the gi, you can pin them in 20, well, it depends on if they, what point total you got for the throw to get them down there. But you can hold them for the full point if you only hold them for 20 or 25 seconds with their back exposed. However, in a sport where submissions... So if somebody gets out of your Ketsugatami in Judo, they're going to stand you back up. If somebody gets out of your Ketsugatami in Jiu-Jitsu, you're going to get choked because they're now on your back. And the catch wrestlers did not use headlocks in legitimate contests because they were afraid of giving someone their back and getting choked. So those were the reasons that I'm pretty convinced that these guys were working. The match was much more exciting than the first match in 1917. The, uh, they were using holes that you wouldn't normally use to expose yourself to danger. And within two years, Earl Caddock retires and goes into business. So I think he already had it in his mind that he was only going to wrestle for a little while longer. And I don't think that he just told his kids a story. A lot of the time, professional wrestlers from the earliest days all the way up into the modern day era of kayfabe did not smarten up their family. They did not tell their family what was going on in professional wrestling. And I think based on the time he wrestled and when he got out, he retired in 1922. I think a lot like uh, John the Tiger Man Pesic and a few other wrestlers, uh, Stanislaus Abisko, from what I understand, never really loved the worked aspects of pro wrestling that he came back into in the 1920s and he much preferred the more legitimate contests he was wrestling 
during his first time in the United States between 1909 and 1914. I don't think Caddick personally liked the work nature of pro wrestling, and he didn't want his sons to know that he had ever done that. So it would not be unusual for him to say, yeah, I just told him there's no way I could do that. I think that the conversation probably did occur. He probably did want them to take the match around the country, and Caddock said, no, I cannot do that. He just didn't tell the kids we did work that match. But I firmly believe that Caddock could have said, no, I'm not going to take this match around the country. And for whatever reason he got out, maybe he didn't like the work nature of wrestling. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he said, it's easier on my body. We won't know that. What we do know is in 1922, he decided to retire when he was still, what he would have been, 34 at that time. So he's still a young man, still in his prime as a heavyweight wrestler. But he decides to retire and go into business full time. So whatever caused that his dislike of the work nature of wrestling he just saw better opportunities in the business world whatever Caddock gets out very early Stecker stays in uh, until mental health challenges force his retirement but he was more of a, a lifer uh, like so many of the other early pro wrestlers so I did reprise my well, I never studied the 1917, so I guess I never technically offered an opinion, but I will say I just assumed it was a work match too. So Mike Chapman's interview did make me go back and relook at that, and I did change my opinion of the uh, 1917 match. I think that that might have been a contest. Actually, I think it was a contest. I'll go out and say it. I think that one was a contest. I think 1920 was definitely worked, and Caddock uh, got out not long after that. So, And I'll, I'll take him at his word that he and Stecker told Curly they weren't going to take that match all over the country, because they didn't. Uh, they both went and started wrestling different people, and Stecker ended up losing the title at the end of the year to Ed Strangler-Lewis. So... Great interview, highly recommend it, and I have not read any of his books yet, but I'll probably do that now in the near future since I'm done uh, writing and researching about Frank Gotch. I don't know what else I could write that I haven't covered already. The I've wrestled around with what I was going to review this week, because I've actually watched a couple different things recently. And one of the things I watched was, uh, I did not care for WWF programming in the 1980s. There were a few wrestlers I liked, but much like today, I found it lacking in comparison to the NWA style wrestling that I was used to from St. Louis and then later from the syndicated programs we got from the different NWA territories. And eventually we got all the Crockett programs, which would become WCW. And in the 80s, Crockett was fantastic. By the early 90s, WCW was a mess and they never would really recover from it. It was pretty bad. Even if you go back now and look at the NWO stuff from 96 and 97, that stuff got pretty old pretty quick. But I did see a series of 
shows that the WWE Network just released on Peacock a few months ago. It's like 40 new shows from the 1980 uh, WWE Championship Wrestling show. And it's the setup for the Larry Zbysko, Bruno San Martino feud. And I do have to say, while a lot of the matches are squash matches, and some are interesting just to see Hulk Hogan when he was younger. I never was a Hogan fan, and I can't say he wowed me uh, with these, but he wasn't a bad heel in 1980. Um, Bob Backlund was a very accomplished wrestler, but I could see why towards the end of his reign, people were probably getting tired of the, you know, howdy doody. Um type you know all-american boy personality and you know the lack of a real good promo but i thought that the bruno larry zabisco setups and and those continuing larry zabisco attacking arnold skolan and rick mcgraw and bruno having to come out i thought those were very well done so if if only just to fast forward and go look at those segments with Bruno and Larry Zabisco in that recently released show, I would recommend those. So, not going to go into a in-depth analysis uh, this week. There's lots of old stuff out there. All of the old stuff does not hold up. Um, I'll go into some of the shows at some point that I went through on a Sunday a few weeks ago. Just around the time I was really a big fan, and boy, some of those territories were really on their last legs. But with that, I think I'm going to close up for this week. The next episode is going to be focused on what I learned researching Sorokichi Matsuda. And we'll have a review, and maybe I'll share my thoughts on uh, Money in the Bank. If I don't share my thoughts on the Money in the Bank match on the June 10th episode, I'll definitely do so. I'm sorry, June 10th, July 10th, and then I will definitely do so on the July 24th episode if I don't do it on the July 10th. So until next time, everybody, take care. Bye-bye.